Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference on H-1B RFEs. We're going to focus on three of the most important issues that we see all the time in the request for evidence. I have with me Kevin Andrews, who's been at the Murthy Law Firm for about seven years, both as a brilliant law clerk and then as an attorney. Ashley Barbone, who's been with us about five years and focusing heavily on H-1B issues. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and we're delighted and honored to share and discuss today's topic with you. So as I said a few minutes ago, we're going to focus on the RFE issues. And as many of you are aware, the number of RFEs has dramatically increased in the past year or two compared to several years ago. Previously, it might have been 5%, maybe 10% tops, if that. Now we're finding 20 to 30% of cases are issued RFEs. Part of the reason could be that they are accepting a lot more cases because of the quota or the cap issue. And as people are talking about now is the RFE season for cap cases. But there are also a lot of non-cap cases that are subject to RFEs. And the main focus that the USCIS or the issues that they're focusing on are maintenance of status issues, the right to control that you as an employer actually control the employee's work. And the third is really, truly, is this work in a specialty occupation? So if we can get started, Ashley, what's maintenance of status? What does it mean? Sure. So when filing a change of status application, such as going from F1 to H1B, you have to include proof that you have been maintaining your current status at the time of filing. And this can sometimes be problematic for uh, those transitioning from F1 to H1B that have maybe been attending certain schools that are maybe more scrutinized or they don't have all the documentation to show they've been been maintaining that status. Uh, and this generally comes up in issues where the students have been working on something called curricular practical training or CPT. Yeah, actually, CPT is, uh, is is where I think we see most of the maintenance of status issues in those transition cases for students going from F1 to transitioning into uh, H1B. So what it, what is CPT? I think it's impl important for employers to know when they're looking for prospective workers. So curricular practical training, or CPT, is a kind of uh, alternate work study or internship that this F1 student can engage in while they're still going to school. So there are a couple of elements there. Uh, one of the requirements is that there has to be a cooperative agreement between the employer who is offering the internship and the school who is offering this CPT work authorization. And uh, one of the one of the main things for uh, graduate students to participate in CPT is that they've completed at least one academic year of study uh, on the graduate program before starting the CPT. However, there's an exception. Uh, CPT can be authorized by the student, uh, by the designated school official at the university if CPT is a quote require, uh, if participation in CPT is immediately required for the particular academic program. And so I think what we're seeing is some 
designated school officials might be uh, implementing that a little bit more liberally than others. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. And so what are we noticing with the DSOs in general? Right. So unfortunately, some of the DSOs are not as knowledgeable about the rules in, for issuing CPT. And we've even seen where USCIS is denying requests to change status for certain students, even when they had I-20s that were endorsed for CPT by their school DSOs. Is that because they're suspicious that it's not a properly issued I-20? Yeah, there endorsed. have been some some schools that were, you know, again, not following the rules. And now USCIS is scrutinizing pretty much all student cases now um, to make sure that they, their CPT was properly issued. Yeah, and that's really kind of unfortunate because the student is, you know, in a lot of cases what we're seeing, the student is following all the rules. They're getting their, uh, what this form called an I-20 uh, signed by the designated school official, the DSO, for the CPT work authorization. But USCIS is coming back and saying, hey, we don't really think that this was compliant with the rules, even though you followed what the DSO said. And, and so the consequence is denying the change of status request for that particular worker. So maybe the H-1B would get approved, but maybe just for consular processing. So what types of documents can they provide then in such yeah, cases? Right, yeah. So what we're seeing with the RFEs, I mean, definitely some things that, you know, the evidence that needs to get provided is that, uh, that there is an employer co-op agreement between the school and the employer offering this uh, internship, this curricular practical training. Uh, there does need to be evidence from the school that the CPT employment was integral to the study or they were receiving academic credit. So maybe a letter or something from the school, uh, the designated school official. Um, the, obviously, the, uh, the I-20 does need to be uh, signed by the DSO prior to starting employment. So showing a signed and dated I-20 that precedes the start of the employment is definitely good. And then also just any other academic work that you completed for, for the CPT. Uh, every school is different, but some schools, you know, require that the, the student file uh, or uh, write a paper uh, explaining what their internship was about and how it was relevant to the academic program. So any kind of work product associated with that CPT kind of goes to show that it was, you know, a real legitimate purpose for the academic program and not just a subterfuge to extend um, uh, work authorization for students. Okay, so this is really helpful. And unlike the other two issues that we're going to talk about, the right to control and the specialty occupation issues, the, the interesting thing about the maintenance of status or the employer and the employee having to establish that the candidate applying for immigration has maintained valid legal status in the U.S., even if the USCIS determines that the person has not maintained valid status in the, in the U.S., valid non-immigrant status, the USCIS will simply deny the change of status, but they can still approve the actual H-1 petition. What does this mean? As most of you know, this simply would require the candidate to leave the United States, travel abroad, for example, go back to India or London or wherever, and apply for the H-1B visa stamp at the consulate, and then re-enter the U.S. and obtain a fresh I-94 card well, no longer at the port of entry by CBP like the good old days because now it's online, but still be able to obtain H-1B status by re-entering the United States on or before, you know, up to 10 days before October 1st, if it's an October 1st start date H-1 petition. Um, so that's the good news, I guess, if you're even unable to show status. But then we have issues about the right to control, which is the next biggest issue we want to touch upon. What is the right to control, Kevin, and how does it work? 
Uh, thanks, Sheila. So, yeah, right to control, this all relates to the H-1B classification part. So like you mentioned, a lot of these petitions that are being filed, uh, the employers are asking for two separate immigration benefits. One is H-1B classification. This is a specialty occupation. We have the right to control. And the other issue is the change of status, which we were talking about before. So right to control is something that we're increasingly seeing. We've been seeing it probably for the last, increasingly for the last four years since the Newfeld memo in 2010 came out. But right, e- even now, uh, USCIS is increasing their scrutiny even further, asking for extensive evidence of that employer-employee relationship. And they're particularly cracking down, as they have been for a few years now, on IT consulting companies, particularly those that work in the so-called EVC model, employer, vendor, client, where the employee is being sent to an end client to, uh, to work. So what we're seeing is RFEs that are requesting extensive and very specific documentation from the end client. Uh, you know, a, a letter just confirming the employment from the end client it seems to be no longer enough. USCIS is picking at that, those letters and saying, well, we want to see more details of the project excel, itself, the job duties, the minimum requirements for the position. So basically, whatever, evi- whatever information is not on the letter is the, ev- is the information that USCIS is honing in on and saying was absent in the RFE response. Hmm. So unfortunately, while USCIS is asking for all this documentation from the end client, the end clients are reluctant to provide this documentation to the petitioner or the employee. Uh, they don't want to issue letters. They don't want to provide, you know, most cases, the confidential contracts that they have with their vendors. And now, that's completely understandable because that's the reason they didn't hire this H-1 employee. Right. They purposefully went through a contracting company so that they could have that level of protection and not have to micromanage the issue. Right. It's very much a catch-22, but USCIS doesn't seem to give any deference to this industry model. Mm-hmm. So in 2010, the, U- uh, the Vermont Service Center, they published some guidance for, for uh, petitioners and practitioners. They've, they said that we understand end client letters are, are helpful, but they're not required. And they said that um, petitioners can include other types of documents in lieu of the client letter. And then USCS published additional guidance in 2012, and most recently the California Service Center reaffirmed, reconfirmed this guidance in June of 2014. Basically their stance is, while the documents from the clients are helpful, not required to establish the employer-employee relationship, and petitioners could include any type of combination of documents to show that relationship and their right to control, and that adjudicators are going to review all of the evidence look at the totality of the circumstances to make a determination if there is that employer-employee relationship. Very good point. So what are the kinds of evidence then that they look at, Kevin? Uh, well, I was what Ashley was just saying, we're sure to remind USCIS of that when they say, oh, well, the end client information is lacking in this regard or that regard. You know, remind them that they should look at the totality of the evidence. Uh, that totality, the, the best place, I think, for employers to look at just as a practical matter when they're looking to file their petitions is this 2010 uh, Neufeld memo. That's N-E-U-F-E-L-D. If you just want to Google that memo, it'll come up. Uh, This memo gives 11 factors uh, that USCIS would consider, which they say no one uh, factor being determinative, and it's a non-exhaustive list of things. And, you know, the obvious ones that they're looking for are contracts between each of the layers, work orders, purchase orders, uh, you know, the, the actual agreements between them, evidence that the employer is paying the beneficiary employee, providing fringe benefits, insurance, health insurance, uh, uh, 401k, things like that. 
does the employer provide the tools that the employee uses, a laptop or something, usually at the end client? How does the employer uh, communicate on a day-to-day basis and supervise the work of the beneficiary? If the, ben- if the worker has an issue at the client site, what is the mechanism for the employee to communicate with their employer about that problem? Uh, those are the factors that USCIS should consider, and if there's a lot of documentation hitting um, most of those factors, it should be a solid case. Um, and, you know, employers do need to shoot for the best evidence. Obviously, letters from all layers, contracts from all the layers, showing all of that would be the best evidence. Certainly in the real world, because of the things that we've been talking about, you know, reluctance from end clients to provide documents, or maybe the short-term nature of how the projects are being extended, maybe only in three- or six-month increments. They're not being extended in three-year increments. Uh, so, so the best evidence might not be available in case-by-case situations. Uh, in those situations, the petitioner, like for example, uh, getting an end client letter. The le- if the end client is not willing to provide a letter, provide evidence that you attempted to get the end client letter. So, uh, you know, maybe an email that's from the end client refusing to provide the letter for confidentiality reasons. This would show that there is a relationship. Now, maybe the end client doesn't want to divulge all of the parameters of that relationship for confidentiality reasons, but it does tend to show that it is more likely than not that an employer-employee relationship exists. So having something for each of those uh, chain, each of those links in the chain um, is would create a strong case for this issue about right to control. And like the mid-vendor employer actually putting something out there, summarizing the contract, summarizing whatever they can uh, by trying to explain that, hey, please confirm the following, one, two, three, four, five, and, you know, because we, you know, this person's been working on this project or blah, blah, blah. And even if, like uh, Kevin just said, they say, we, well, we really can't give all those details because of confidentiality. The fact that they didn't say no or that you've now laid out one side of it the best you can under the circumstances. That's what being a good lawyer or being proactive and creative is not just to be passive, which is what we try to go and do for our clients is try to win every single case by presenting the strongest evidence in a manner to protect our client, who many cases happens to be the mid-vendor rather than the end client, because the end client cases are, you know, comparatively easier in this climate with the way the USCIS works. So now that we've talked about maintenance of status issues and the employer-employee slash right to control, the third most important issue that we frequently see where USCIS is issuing RFEs or denials is on the definition of specialty occupation and trying to make the argument that, hey, we don't believe that this particular H-1B employee is really, really performing job duties that we believe are in a specialty occupation. So they're looking at it in a very restrictive fashion um, than they were in the past, and they still rely, the USCI still relies on the OOH or the Occupational Outlook Handbook for guidance on what's a specialty occupation. So what exactly is a specialty occupation? So. When you're filing an H-1B specialty occupation petition, you have to show that the position the petitioner is sponsoring for, that the job requires a bachelor's degree or higher in a specific field of study, and you have to demonstrate that the beneficiary has the relevant degree. Now, USCIS is heavily scrutinizing uh, H-1B, I'm sorry, IT-related positions um, where they have a degree and USCIS doesn't think the degree quite fits the job or they are also questioning the SOC code that is listed on the LCA. That's the occupational classification or category from the ONET, uh, Department of Labor ONET um, library. So if the ONET classification that was chosen on the LCA 
if the information says that maybe only sometimes a degree is required or less than a bachelor's degree is required, USAS is heavily scrutinizing those cases. What Can you give us an example here, maybe, Kevin? Yeah, I think an example that I'm seeing as a trend this uh, this CAP season deals with computer systems analysts. So this occupation, this SOC code or standard occupational classification code for computer systems analysts, there is uh, definitional information in the OOH, which USCIS is focusing in on. So here's what it says about education for uh, computer systems analysts. A bachelor's degree in a computer, si- computer or information science field is common, although not always a requirement. Some firms hire analysts with business or liberal arts degrees who have skills in information technology or computer programming. So from this, this uh, you know, these two se- sentences, USCIS is inferring that because multiple degrees in varying unrelated spe- uh, fields of study might be accepted for this position, that it cannot be said that a degree in a specific specialty, which is the operative language in the, in the regulation and in the statute, uh, because a degree in a specific specialty is not the actual minimum requirement, again, because computer science, information systems, business, or other liberal arts degrees may be accepted according to the OOH. This isn't necessarily an industry standard. This is just what the OOH happens to say. Uh, from that, that they, they tend to make this generalized assumption that maybe all CSAs are not a specialty occupation. So we have to go through the regulation and, and explain how this is a normal requirement for the employer. It is actually a normal requirement for the industry if you take a look at the industry and uh, hopefully hit all those elements to show that this particular position is actually an ocu- uh, a specialty occupation. In terms of both the employer itself, maybe the industry in general, and this particular employer and client use. So what may be the other kinds of jobs that tend to get scrutinized and why, and how can we overcome that? Uh, other categories sorry, could include computer programmers, computer systems analysts, and like Kevin said, and web developers. However, uh, it's really a case-by-case basis, and I would say strategically employers may want to avoid using some categories, but you'll have to look at it in each individual case. There are all, Because at the end of the day, you have to pick the code that is most relevant to the position. Which, to the job duties in particular. Job duties. You know, so. And to be honest with you, in the OOH, there are, uh, there's language for accountants and for biomedical professionals and financial analysts, and there's language in the OOH that seems to indicate that perhaps a bachelor's degree would not be required if you chose to focus and interpret the language that restrictively. So just because there is some language that can be used as a basis to make a generic claim that these are not specialty occupations doesn't necessarily mean that it's the case. Um, That's what we try to argue in the RFEs, and I think it does vary from case to case. Ultimately, it depends on this particular job, not this particular occupational classification, but this particular job in in the petition. And so the duties need to be very clear that they're unique and complex job duties that typically require a bachelor's degree in a specific Uh, in a specific field. Yeah, and the other thing that we often see is that if you use the word manager, it's almost like the most scary way or more sure way of getting some kind of an RFE or a denial. Uh, And we've even seen in cases where a person has an MBA degree, the USCIS position is that MBA is so broad and generic that everybody in the world, any business in the world, requires some kind of a manager or a person with a business administration degree, and that's too broad and it's not really a specialty occupation, even in cases where the MBA may have an IT concentration, uh, because they're questioning whether, for example, the engineering program is really related to qualify for the particular IT position. And with MBAs, it seems so far-fetched and so broad and generic in in their mind that they're likely to issue an RFE 
or a denial. The strongest cases are where the employee or the beneficiary has a degree, if it's an IT-related field, directly in the field of computer science or electrics or electronical, electrical or electronics engineering, et cetera, maybe information systems. Um, so that's a trend that we've been seeing. Uh, Kevin, are there, are there other trends that you've been seeing? Well, uh, in addition to the MBAs, we're also seeing, uh, uh, so, so t- there are two components to the specialty occupation. One is, it, is the position itself a specialty occupation, and we talked about how you know the USCIS looks at the OOH and making that determination. The other issue is, does the beneficiary qualify for a job if it is a specialty occupation? And so what we're seeing, like you said, Sheila, about the MBAs, you know, the job, they may say, oh, this software developer job is a specialty occupation, but why is an MBA with an IT concentration a field of study that would be a specific specialty uh, that would qualify for this position? We're seeing the same thing with engineering programs. So if a beneficiary has an engineering background uh, US and, and is applying uh, for an H-1B position that's an IT-related position, a computer-related position, Sometimes USCIS is, is challenging that, and you know we need to provide expert testimony and an evaluation of that particular person's education to show there is a strong and clear nexus between this specialty occupation job and this beneficiary's uh, field of study and, and their coursework. So uh, you know the law does say it doesn't matter what the name of the degree is. It matters the, the knowledge that you obtained. Um, so sometimes a, a course-by-course analysis of that per- particular person's uh, academic history is important to show that clear nexus and, and, and to make the case as strong as possible. Um, and I, I guess one other trend that I think uh, is worth noting, I know Sheila, you're getting a lot of these consults and I've seen some of these cases. Uh, in addition to these three basic trends that I think is probably 80 or 90 percent of the H-1B RFEs, we're also seeing where USCIS is issuing notices of intent to deny on H-1B cap subject cases where uh, they allege that multiple petitions, multiple cap subject H-1B petitions are filed for the same beneficiary and end client, but perhaps by different employers. So the, there's a regulation that prevent that says that an employer, one employer, cannot file more than one cap subject petition for the same H-1B worker. And, you know, the rationale is, you know, everybody knows that demand is, uh, is high and supply is low for the H-1B cap numbers. It would be an unfair advantage to allow uh, someone to get two bites at that apple as opposed to the one. But if there is uh, a legitimate need for two separate uh, positions, two separate end client work locations for the same beneficiary, then perhaps that would be okay. So, you know, perhaps two apples is okay, but one apple with two bites might be a problem. What we're seeing is that USCIS is noticing that many Im- companies are filing for the same end client, the same uh, for the same beneficiary, and perhaps even even in some cases using identical uh, language to describe the job itself. So USCIS is saying, well, this looks like ostensibly uh, these companies are related, even though they have separate FEINs and they're separate corporate entities. They're acting as though they're related, and the the regulation says if they identify that the the policy is to deny both petitions, not just the one that might have just been filed as a backup but to dissuade this from becoming an incentive to deny And maybe uh, we should petitions. write an article on this topic for the benefit even of H-1B employees. We really need to because we're seeing a lot of employers in good faith will ask their colleagues or friends, hey, let's try to increase the chance for this employee getting in because he's very important to our project. Or the employee himself or herself may be contacting two or three different employers thinking, well, if there's only one in two chances or one in three chances of being selected under the H-1B lottery, uh, might as well increase that by c- contacting two or three different employers for the same project and the same end client. Well, 
The downside is that then, as Kevin just pointed out, not just that one petition that is revoked or the two petitions that are revoked and the other one that is likely to get approved can go through. The USCIS is taking the position that they will now uh, basically deny them all, deny or revoke all, deny all of those uh, petitions that are pending because of trying to circumvent their position of not abusing and misusing uh, because they really want to remove the incentive for multiple uh, petitions to be filed by a same set or group of employers that are somehow connected or related to each other. I just want to be, make uh, something clear about that. I, it, I think there could be a situation where more than one H-1B, cap subject H-1B petition is filed for a beneficiary. If there's a legitimate need for two specific, two different projects, the beneficiary has to make a choice, obviously, to go one or the other. But if two projects exist... Um, and multiple, more than one petition is filed for that, I think that would be okay. It's trying to make uh, more than one H-1B petition work for the same project. So if you're duplicative in that way, I think that's when you run into trouble. So just, just to make that distinction. Um, I, and I guess uh, one last thing I guess we could talk about, just like strategic points about the RFEs, is uh, you know one thing I think is like standard of proof. And Sheila, I know you... Uh, talk to clients about that all the time, about the standard of proof for the request for evidence? Yeah, well, that's one of the things. I think what happens to us as employers is we think we have to prove our case to the government beyond a reasonable doubt. And as most of us who watch TV know that beyond a reasonable doubt standard is used in a criminal case where the government has to prove that the particular person who is charged of having committed a crime has in fact committed the crime beyond a reasonable doubt to satisfy the jury requirement. That's a very, very high standard to meet. The next standard, which is in quasi-criminal proceedings, is the government's obligation and duty to show by clear and convincing evidence, for example, that there has been fraud or misrepresentation on the part of an applicant or candidate. The lowest standard which is applicable in almost all civil cases, which, by the way, almost every single H-1B filing or an employment-based filing is almost always a civil case with the lowest standard of proof. And that standard is beyond, is a preponderance of the evidence, which is more likely than not, which simply means that we need to show as employers that the person is more likely that means 51% instead of 49% on the other hand, likely to be considered an H-1B professional in a specialty occupation with an employee-employer relationship and maintaining status. Um, you know, I think another thing to remind uh, employers and, and maybe employers need to remind adjudicators sometimes is that USCIS cannot just dismiss evidence without specifically explaining why the evidence is uh, insufficient. So uh, on the specialty occupation um, issue, what we often see is that USCIS asks in the RFE for a more detailed description of the job duties. And then, you know, sometimes the, the petitioner will provide that. And if the case is denied or another RFE is issued, USCIS has this uh, boilerplate statement that basically says that you provided a generic description of the job duties that provides no further detail about why the job is unique or complex. And this is a boilerplate language that USCIS uses very often. It's okay for them to use that boilerplate language, but they have they need to back it up with why. You know, sometimes I think we're seeing that uh, there are conclusions in the RFEs that aren't supported by explanations and, and rationale. So, um, you know, testimony from the employer 
uh, that's signed under penalty of perjury is considered evidence in this, like Sheila had mentioned, administrative proceeding. We only need to show that it's more likely than not, 51%, not you know the 99% for beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's important to remind the USCIS that you know even if they have some doubts, some that that's okay. They they need to still approve the petition if it's more likely than not. Uh, the the beneficiary and the petitioner yeah they don't qualify. act like that but you're absolutely right that is the legal standard and in terms of time processing what are the times uh, so for H I'm sorry for RFVs you have about 87 days to respond and the chances of success on that response are the same whether you file in the first week that it's due or closer to the deadline however the Vermont Service Center did state recently that they were encouraging CAP subject petitions with RFEs to respond as soon as possible so that they could adjudicate all of those petitions by the October 1st. But then what happens date. if they issue another RFE on the RFE? That is very possible. USCIS can always issue a second RFE or even a notice of intent to deny that petition. Those are not as common to get a second second RFE, but it does happen. And with the notice of intent to deny, you only have 30 days to respond. So it's a much quicker turnaround. Yeah, and so the problem is when it takes a week or two to get the response and you're busy and you're dealing with work and you don't get get to it till the last week or two, you create a panic and the less chance of actually obtaining that approval because some of these cases has to have to be worked on very strategically. And also just to clarify, you know, when is an RFE issued versus a notice of intent to deny? Um, on this issue of the multiple H-1B petitions that we were talking about earlier, we are, we're seeing that as a notice of intent to deny often, more often than not. On the issues that were all the other issues, maintenance of status, specialty occupation, and control, those typically are coming as a request for evidence. So, you know, what's the difference? I, I think the difference that we're seeing is w when USCIS has a request for information that they need to adjudicate the petition, but they're not sure one way or the other, they're going to issue the request for evidence. If the information they have uh, with them right now is, in their minds, derogatory or would lead them to deny the case unless you come up with something to overcome that intention, that's when you're going to see it come as a notice of intent to deny. So it is important because the time difference is 87 days, like Ashley said, for the RFE versus only 30 uh, or maybe 33 if it come to, comes to you in the mail for the notice of intent to deny. Okay, wonderful. And I know I always try to point out to, towards the end that we try to stay between the 30 to 45 minute schedule because I know everybody's very busy. And so we will wrap up in the next five, maximum 10 minutes, maybe well before the 10 minute time. Um, to keep you on track. So the other strategic considerations that we really need to touch upon in a situation with H-1B applicants is, of course, since many of them are changing status from student or F-1, in most cases, to H-1B, as most of you are aware, there's the cap gap. Many of the students are working, even though their F-1 OPT expired earlier, they're allowed to stay here and continue working because the H-1B petition was filed, as long as their F-1 expires after April 1st and an H-1 petition was filed and it's pending, they are allowed to legally work till October 1st, which is when the H-1, the earliest date that the H-1 can get approved under the new fiscal quota. So what happens is that F-1 students get that 60-day grace period. If the H-1B petition is either denied or withdrawn before October 1st, as long as the USCIS does not find that there was a violation of that person's status. Right. So I think what we're seeing is, you know, CAPCAP allows uh, the students to continue to work until, you know, September 30th or October 1 when the H-1B would kick in. Or if there's a decision uh, that denies that H-1B, if that happens first, then they have to stop working at that time. So, 
you know, this is a strategic consideration when you're responding to RFEs because, you know, we're, we're it kind of we're still we're in this cap gap period between uh, this past April up until this coming September 30th. If there's still a pending H1, if the H1B is still pending, there's no final decision. That person can continue to work on the on the uh, cap gap, but if there is a decision, and if it's a you know a decision that we don't like, it's a, it's a denial decision. That person might have to stop working sooner rather than later. So, just something to think about when somebody's working in cap gap. It's a strategic consideration about the medium term employment. You know, basically from now until uh, September 30th. And the rule is that if the student had OPT and was working on the cap gap, they must stop working 10 days after the denial. They they do have uh, yeah. So if the OPT if they're working on an OPT, uh, I'm sorry, in cap gap and there was a denial, they must stop working uh, 10 days after that denial decision. They have the 10-day And for grace. STEM extensions, as most of you know, there's an extra 17 months, which would permit students in the science, technology, engineering, and math fields, and as, if the employer is E-Verified, uh, has signed up for the E-Verified program to get the extra 17 months. And so the H-1B employee in those cases has another opportunity to possibly file under the next H-1B cap season, so you get really... Two, and if you're really lucky and it's time properly, possibly a third H-1B uh, fiscal year ability to take advantage of. Right. And then one final thing is if that change of status request is denied the benef- because they say the beneficiary was not maintaining F-1 status, um, for instance, if because of maybe they were working with CPT that should not have been authorized, then that student would lose his work authorization immediately, even if there was still time remaining on the CPT or OPT. And they would... St- you know, have to leave the country too. Because there's, they're starting to accrue unlawful presence from the date that there's a decision right. um, confirming that they have violated their status. So, you know, to try and sort of start to wrap up, uh, what we've seen is that uh, what you have all seen, and we've been certainly seeing as well, is that there's been a greater scrutiny with H-1B cases, especially for ID consulting companies uh, that tend to work on the employer, vendor, and client model. And employers, you know, may really want to understand details about the F-1 student's work authorization to increase their chances for a smooth transition from F-1 to H-1 or J-1 or M-1, as the case may be. But M-1s have restrictions. And, of course, there's no guarantee ever that we all know. That's the reason it's called an H-1B lottery. There's no guarantee that somebody will actually be selected under the H-1B random lottery program in this year's, based on the statistical odds, it's about one in two chances. Um, and as the economy tends to get better and more employers are filing H-1s and there's greater need for high-tech employees, the de- demand may continue to grow and rise um, because the supply continues to remain more or less the same, even though a lot of universities and a lot of uh, educational institutions are realizing that they need to focus and encourage children in the United States to study in the STEM subjects. Uh, On behalf of Ashley Barbone, Kevin Andrews, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we thank you for making time to attend today's teleconference. Uh, We're certainly here to help you with your H-1B filings, extensions, RFEs, motions, appeals, denials or any tr- problem issues with F1s, because we, as you know, have a former designated school official or international student advisor who has worked with us and had extensive experience in student issues. All of these are extremely complex and thinking that somebody in-house can just fill out the forms in the middle while they're doing technical recruiting and 10 other things 
may not be the best use of your time and resources, especially if you're going to get RFEs and denials of most of your cases because it ends up costing more in time and money and lost productivity and lost morale for you and your employees in your company. We look forward to continuing to take great care of you and help you. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.